Hello, Internet friends, and welcome back to Love-Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm your host, Andy Bowell. I'm your other host, Alex Ruiz, and we are here, as always, to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your lives in this order. And Andy, we're working on Labor Day. We are. I mean, if you... Do you consider this work? Like, I can... it's not jobby work. We're not getting paid for it, but, like... Uh, I could be lazing right now, and I'm not. <laughs> do do what you love, and you'll never work a day in your life? Oh, wait, I, I proved that's not exactly true. <laughs> oh, oh, sweetie, have your, de- have your dreams been dashed by the reality of production work? Yeah, a bit. <laughs> but that's what, that's I what I get it. for refusing to move to L.A., so. And I refuse to move to L.A. Really? Okay, so the narrative that I've always heard is that it's just too rough to move to L.A., especially considering, you know, you've got you've got a partner as well to consider whose whose own career is would be terribly, terribly interrupted by you moving and, you know, family and distance and all of that stuff. I was under the impression that had more to do with it than your just unwillingness to do it. Well, that has more to do with me not moving anywhere else. Um, but I have never, ever wanted to go to L.A. Um, I always just kind of knew that it was too big, too busy, uh, too many fish in too small a pond. Um, I've got several friends who have done it, and to their credit, just about all the ones who went there for production seem to be thriving all of the comedians who went there to try and make it big in comedy, varying degrees of of doing okay, but it's just it. There's there's too much. There's there somehow there are still too many people who are able to pack up a suitcase and a dream and then go work for sixty percent of the regular rate and somehow somehow be making it work and thrive and i've just i've never thought that was for me i always assumed i would move to vancouver which is the la of california or uh not jesus the la of canada (laughs) before i go to actual la i mean it's i hear it's nice it's cold but i hear it's nice you know (laughs) you see a lot of vancouver landmarks in random tv in random tv and movies you do and and even though they're not set anywhere near Vancouver, you just kind of go, is that, is that building? Okay, yeah, they shot this in Vancouver. Never mind. All the CW shows are shot in Vancouver, they even are. though they take place in random American cities. Yep. And Canada's not bad. It's a lot more racist than anyone gives it credit for, but it's not bad. You know, that's that's been my experience. I've visited Calgary a couple of times on vacation, and just the general vibe of calgary and the neighboring towns of alberta at least uh, is very much more like like red than you'd think when you hear canada i remember a lot of people just bitching about trudeau i mean i got my own problems with trudeau but it's not that he is uh too liberal uh it's 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 other stuff i remember (laughs) i remember reading I, i went on a kick back in like early high school where I was reading a number of Jim Carrey biographies 
And something I guess that he tried to make a point of talking about in a number of interviews was that when he was a kid growing up in Canada, I don't remember what part of Canada specifically, but there was a brief period in his youth where his family was really struggling. And it was around the same time that his neighborhood had received this giant influx of Jamaican immigrants and refugees. And he was like, okay, I'll tell you, we, I'll tell you right now he was in Toronto. Okay. So apparently his particular neighborhood had a lot of Jamaican immigrants and refugees very suddenly. And he's pretty upfront about like, I was 16, 17 years old, very blue collar. And the narrative that existed in my family and our community and amongst all our friends was these shitty ass Jamaican people are coming in and ruining our neighborhood and taking away all our, all our economic possibilities and he fully acknowledges he's like that was not true that was a reaction to an economic downturn and we decided that the new scary brown people in our neighborhood were the reason why and thankfully adult Jim Carrey understands how teenage Jim Carrey and his family were not doing the right thing there but it I don't know, it was it felt very instructive to me at that time to be like, oh, okay. So this is how this works. <laughs> Cause, you know, it was the Bush years and we were all just mad that we had, you know, a president who seemed very manipulable and a vice president who clearly still basically just worked for Halliburton. Like we just kind of ran with it, you know? Increased its nuclear arsenal. Uh, Suzanne, it's nuclear arsenal. Nuclear arsenal. Look what the future held. Exactly. Set a couple of dangerous presidents there. And we made uh, Jimmy Carter give up his peanut farm. Uh, I just... <laughs> jumping right into the politics today on, today on this episode. <laughs> I got a hella political hate topic, too. <laughs> Oh, God. What were you about to say? I was going to say, this has been a, a bit of a, a, a winding trail of, a, of an opener. <laughs> we haven't even talked about how there's a hurricane coming. Oh, well, I mean, by the time that any of these folks hear it, the hurricane will have passed. And That's true. I'm expecting you'll survive. If not, this is going to be really weird to release. <laughs> yeah. But I'm... I don't know, Andy. I... You weren't in Orlando in 04 when, like, four hurricanes hit in a row, were you? So, funnily enough, I was, but on vacation. I remember being at, like, I think it was the Disney Yacht Club or something, talking to the concierge about how Ivan was coming. And, like, we, we had already seen the damage from either Charlie or Andrew or whichever one at the airport. So, so funnily, yes, but then I got right out, like, like in the intermediate period. Okay. Yeah. I just, Charlie and Andrew, Andrew was like 92. I don't think it was that one. It might've been Charlie. I don't remember the names of all of them, but I just remember it was my freshman year of high school. And we ended up having like a month off of school because of all these damn hurricanes. And my dad worked for a hotel at the time uh, in downtown Orlando and they wanted him to work. And he was like, I can't work. Because I got to look after my family. And they were like, we will put your family up in a room, like, free of charge. Just come. We need you. 
he worked nights, he worked maintenance, they like needed him there, and he was like, okay, that's fine, you, they paid him his normal rate, and he got a room that we all got to stay in, and we did that for two hurricanes, and then the third one, we were like, we can't stay in that hotel for another hurricane, so I stayed at home <laughs> with my mother, and my dad got a room, and stayed at, stayed at the hotel, and worked, and he came back, and I was like, yeah, I I can't next next hurricane because at that point we knew another hurricane was coming. I was like going back to the hotel. I can't I can't do the house. I can't do it. I can't do it. My mother was walking around terrified that the house was gonna fall down and ah. kept like waking me up to be like, "Hey, should we hide in the closet? It sounds like it sounds like the house is gonna fall down." And I was just like, "No, mom, go to bed. Nothing's gonna happen. We're all gonna be okay." <laughs> Your poor mother. My poor Hi, mother was terrified. <laughs> yeah, I just, I felt for her, but I, by the end of it, I was just like, no, okay, another hurricane's coming. Let's go back to the hotel. And the fourth hurricane, we went back to the damn hotel. Nice. I did not worry about it. So all this to say, I think you'll be fine. Yeah. You'll be okay. Just like load up on alcohol and snack foods and wait it out and you'll be fine oh absolutely we did the prep and all that i, I we're, we're we're gonna be a-okay but with that said uh do you want to get into what we're talking about today sure let's completely non sequitur into uh I don't, into a I don't, book series I don't have, about your have... children <laughs> i don't have a good segue from hurricanes into animorphs i was trying to think of one <laughs> Well, I mean, what is what is what what is a hurricane if not something that interrupts the Scholastic Book Fair where we all where we all attended uh, and bought Animorphs books? Oh, uh, there. Okay, yes, I tip my hat to you. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into the format first. Yeah, so uh, every episode of LHR, we take a love, a hate, and a relationship. Hence the title. Um, and one of us breaks each one down, and then we take one of your relationship questions, although not in this case, um, and spoilers, yeah, right? And and talk about it. So I have the love this week, and I would like to talk about um, a book series that I, I very deeply loved, and that being the Animorphs books. What? I'm all I'm all in. I love these fucking oh, books. Absolutely. Please go 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 straight in. So anyone who doesn't know what I'm talking about, and if you're if you're in our age range, you more than likely do. But uh, the Animorphs was a sci-fi children's book series written by K. A. Applegate and husband Michael Grant. Later on, with the help of legions of ghostwriters, that was published from 1996 to 2001. Um, you know. If, if you're our age, you'll remember these books by the covers, which were always very striking and, and very unique, in which one of the main characters of the book would transform into an animal. And it would be like a series of five pictures, sort of, you know, A to B. If you're at all like me, these covers freaked you the hell out, and you didn't even touch these books until around fourth grade or so. Um which was right as the series was actually wrapping up. 
the books uh, later became a Nickelodeon TV show that told the story of a group of young kids, Jake, Rachel, Cassie, Marco, Tobias, and Axe, who were given the power to transform into any animal they touch, as well as discovered a secret alien invasion threatening to take over the world. Each book would move the story forward with a different one of the six main characters alternatively narrating. And these books were great. Like, I talk about being scared of them. That's just because I, like, you know, when, when you're a small boy, maybe you see a picture of somebody who looks kind of like you turning into a fly. And you go, that's weird as hell. I, I want nothing to do with this. Or, um, you know, turning into a crab or a giraffe, and it just looks really weird. Like, these these were terrifying to me in some instances. <laughs> Just based on the covers. Just based on the covers. I, I judged the books wholly by the covers being like, I don't want to touch the fly kid. Like, if, if I open this book, my hand's going to be touching the fly part, and I don't want to do that. <laughs> well, sure. And, and you know, if you pull up any of the covers, it looks kind of like a little Cronenbergian. Yes, exactly. Uh, just just how they go with it. Because uh, they get they, they got these, like, pretty normal, like, teenage kid models to be the kids and then yeah they just used whatever was the 90s morphing technology to just kind of gradually shift which is funny because you know in the books they don't morph that way they make like entire scenes out of how when they morph it's actually like if they're gonna morph into like a fly First you grow the antennas, then your eyes kind of melt into the compound eyes, and your mouth kind of melts into a proboscis, and then you're, you start growing the legs out, but it's all like one body part at a time. Right. And the covers... Which if they actually depicted that on the covers, it would be even more nightmarish. Oh yeah, it would be absolutely terrifying. <laughs> Instead, you get kind of this, you know, it's this one through five flip book thing. And something I actually really thought was charming, speaking of flip books, in the bottom corner of every page of each book would be like the transformation flip book style. And it made a lot more sense that way. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't accurate to how they do it in the stories, right. which I always thought was amusing. And in the and in the TV show, they used like again shitty late '90s, early 2000s computer technology to like morph these. It's like someone saw the uh, the black and white Michael Jackson video and just kind of was like, "Oh, let's use that, but on children and animals." <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was 1998. They were trying their best. Um... Yeah. So yeah, it took me a while. Like I'm trying to think back. Like I remember reading. I, I was never a boxcar children fan. I but I either. think it was the Bailey School Kids, which was a series of books where like the their teacher was a vampire. Yep, that's right. Their their teacher was a vampire, and their camp counselor was a werewolf, and and like that was what I was reading in my early elementary school childhood. And skipping Animorphs mm. because they freaked me out, and I don't, I don't quite remember how, but just somehow I finally decided to give it a shot and start the series. And I remember like the first six or seven books I read were completely out of order. I was just picking covers that I liked and and going from there. Sure. But even doing that, like it, it, 
instantly I was hooked. And even reading the books out of order, it's like, okay, well, clearly now I have to start from the beginning to figure out how this actually all works and happens and and, and invest myself in the story. And mm-hmm. I, I mean, I really fell in love with them because, like, it was unlike anything else a, gr- a grade school kid could get his hands on, at least at least super easily. Um or at least I guess I could get my hands on. You know, it was intensely sci-fi. There, there are major science fiction themes. There's, there's very much like heavy buy-in. Here are the different alien species. Here's how the technology works. We've laid it all out. It's not just like a magic talisman or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, intensely sci-fi. Incredibly dark at times. The most mature like children's book. I had ever come across, you know, and, and it got, it got dark it, in some spots. It got incredibly dark, but you know, at the yeah. same time it was able to balance action, comedy, drama, you know, all these genres pretty perfectly. And, and I say all that, but it still felt appropriate for my age range. It, it felt like a, something you should be reading in fourth, fifth, sixth grade. Well, and I always felt like I look back on it and I ended up rereading a lot of them when I was a little older. Cause I mean, if you're, if you're a little advanced in reading age, you can get through one of like the regular series books. And like, I think I was reading like one in two hours. Yeah. Like you could get through it pretty quickly, but like I look back on some of these and like, okay, I was like up front with you. I was a huge Tobias fan. Sure. Like every Tobias story, I like gobbled up. And I'm sitting here going through it, and I'm like, the first, the first one I ever bought, and the first one I ever read was actually, and I remember this. This I was uh, number forty-three, the test. I'm pretty sure that was the one. It was the one with Tobias morphing into a taxon on the cover. Sure. Uh, and they kept referencing a previous book in it that I later went back. And they talk about how Tobias was tortured. And then I went back and read that one. where And it's Tobias is outright captured and fucking tortured in one. Like, not, not thumb screws or anything. He's putting them in... They, they, they gussy it up enough that he's in a machine that, like makes his pain receptors uh, all fire off. (laughs) But that doesn't change the fact that they physically torture a character and depict it. And and that's the kind of shit that they go like, okay, we're not going to do... It's a war series at the end of it. Like, it is very much an exploration of war. And they childrenify it up in so much as, yes, they... There's... There's some blood, there's some, like, there's plenty of violence, but they, but again, their torture sequence isn't done with thumb screws and shit like that. No. They don't, but, but they introduce the theme of wartime torture for information just in there. And it's understood, like, this is a terrible thing. This is also something that is done in war. Right, absolutely. And I mean, just to... Like, Tobias is one of the most tragic characters in the entire book. For anyone who is unfamiliar or maybe doesn't remember, like, 
in like the first or second book in the entire series, they established this rule that like, yeah, you can turn into animals, but if you're an animal for more than two hours, you're stuck that way and you can't transform mm-hmm. into anything, even your own human self. And the way K. Applegate like established the stakes for this was in one of the first books, Tobias gets the very first. The ver- book. Okay. Yes. The very first book. Um, Tobias gets stuck as a red-tailed hawk and then for like eventually deus ex machina he gets powers back but like for a good chunk of the series he's just a hawk now he's a telepathic hawk no he yeah he is he gets turned into he so the first book is supposed to be like they do their first mission after getting their powers and tobias uh is kind of left behind and he has to stay as a red tailed hawk so that he doesn't get captured and he goes well past the two hour limit. And at the end of the first book, he shows up back at Jake's house and he can't morph back and he stays a hawk all the way through the last book. Yes. He got, he does get his powers back. Yes. He does get the ability to morph back into his human self. They regularly discuss like, if Tobias wanted to, he could just morph back into his human self, stay that way, and be a human again, but he would lose his powers again. And then he couldn't fight. Right. And then he couldn't be part of all of this. And so they just kind of go, all right. Uh, this, And it's a really interesting exploration of determinism and responsibility, but also Tobias is happier as a hawk than he is as a human. Like, they straight up established that over the course of 50 books. Like, it goes in some really interesting philosophical places. But yeah, he ends up spending the entire book series as a hawk. The whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, I keep jumping in here. I have, I love, <laughs> this was my book series. This was my Hardy Boys, you know? Like, my sister read Babysitter's Club and Goosebumps, like... I read some of her Goosebumps, but this was the YA series that I adored as a kid. Totally. And I have so many, so many feelings about it. No, and you're absolutely fine. When I when I told you I wanted to do this, you, you sent me a hearty yes <laughs> over text. So I knew this would be a, a shared love. Um, I mean, there's just, there's so yeah. much to, to go into it. Like for, for someone who's uninitiated, like we haven't even talked about the aliens. We haven't talked about the Yerks who were a terrifying concept as a young boy. Um, these, these alien slugs that can crawl into your ear and then take over your body, you know, but, yeah. but you're still in there, you know, it's basically get out, but. 30 years beforehand and not just for black people. Yeah. Now sink into the floor. Wait, 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 wait. Sink. And it, it freaked me out so much as a kid, you know, like I'd never seen invasion of the body snatchers, but you know, the loss of control is I think a very primal fear. The, the idea of being a spectator in your own head, and they were just such a compelling villainous force. And, you know, to go back to the war aspect, you know, it 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 was war. These guys shot you with laser cannons or they used one of their several different slave alien races 
um, to take you out. And, you know, the main two, the Hork-Bajir and the Taxons, were both equally terrifying. Hork-Bajir basically, like, were these giant seven-foot monsters that were covered in blades and horns and, you know, could shred you to bits. And then the Taxons were these giant centipede slug monsters with, like, rows of teeth and, like... Maybe it's just because we both love them, but it's so evocative. It, it it creates such a picture in your mind before you even see a picture of, you know, these various different alien species on a cover. This was yeah. this was intense. This was dark. I remember the first thing, and I think this is what got me hooked into it to tie back and everything else. My favorite arc in the animorphs and it was the, it was one of those first books i read that made me go okay i gotta figure this out was the david arc the the david trilogy right the yes. david trilogy um which is go ahead well and it, it, it was a series of three books in a row where like it, it's about halfway into the season and they find a way to give another kid powers and they you know they figure okay let's bring a new member into the team and let's test him out for a little while. If this works, we'll be able to start bringing more and more people. We'll really be able to fight. We'll be able to turn this war around. And the kid they recruit, you know, winds up going through some traumatic stuff on his own and then turns completely evil. And so you had the evil Animorph and it was great. But like even and even the David saga, there's weird little nuances there. So the kid they recruit, they rescue him from like his parents get taken by the Yerks, and everything is kind of re- ends up being revealed to him. And so they're like, okay, we rescued you. Now we have to hide you. He's in hiding. So they give him the powers so that he can a both a hide more effectively. B yes, join their crusade of sorts, and then he just kind of decides. He kind of veers off into this weird own morality he has. Like, for instance, he's willing to kill non-humans. Right. Like, he will not kill any of the Animorphs while they are in human form. But if they are morphed into an animal, he goes, at that point, I'm killing an animal. Which is such a fascinating line of philosophy. It's dark and, like, horrifying. And again, kind of plays in with this what's the morality of child soldiers kind of deal because he is, he never wanted to be, none of them ever wanted to be put into this war. No. He in particular did not want to be put into this war. And then he's kind of left with nothing and just kind of goes, okay, what do I have left? What I have left is this technology. I have bartering power with the enemy and I have a moralistic philosophy where I go, all right, I am perfectly okay killing when I need to kill. And this is these these are the lines I have drawn. And it's so philosophically fascinating. Absolutely. It's it, it, and like again, this is a kid's book. I think that's why it 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 was so in Uh, so affecting to those of us who grew up with it introducing these concepts maybe for some of us the first time really having to struggle with this sort of thing or or you know learning these tropes for the first time Um, it was just great i remember the the thing 
the scariest thing, one of the scariest things in the whole book for me, and it's in one of the one of the three David books. They go on a mission where they all like they all morph into fleas so they can infiltrate into a, a conference at a hotel or something, and they bump mm-hmm. right up against the two hour mark to the point where like it's like you know one hour fifty nine minutes fifty eight seconds, and they start unmorphing. And I remember David stays a flea but he basically grows to be this human-sized flea for a couple moments and just the 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 description of of that and the you know there's there's a page or two where you don't know if he's going to be able to fully turn human and just like that's a a terrifying notion right there okay you're a human-sized flea now he winds up being okay but like this this was some messed up stuff and you know beyond just oh my god um scary alien stuff i remember very late in the series there's a book that jake narrates that goes back and forth between jake like prepping for a major battle and one of his ancestors um fighting in the civil war and that was Mm. like the first time me as a kid really rubbed shoulders in a fictional sense with what the civil war was and what the the horrors of war could be and i we haven't talked a whole lot about the various characters themselves but something really fascinating is how all of them individually react to the war and what they're doing and what their roles are during it absolutely yeah yeah no no i was letting you i was letting you continue Oh, okay, yeah, but, because, I mean, alright, so Jake, everyone just kind of accepts that Jake is the leader. Jake does not want to be the leader, but everyone is just like, Jake is obviously the leader. Jake, it just is. He is the one. He is the one who can shoulder this burden. Marco is the guy who's like, from the beginning, isn't sure he even wants to do this. He's kind of like, let's just, even though we have these powers, let's just not use them. Let's just pretend this isn't happening. Right, and he's also the guy who, like, makes a joke to hide his own pain. He's the guy who'd, who, I, th- I think at one point, he literally quotes as saying that he would, you know, rather laugh than cry, and I latched yeah. onto that so hard. Marco was always my favorite character in the series. Yeah. Um, you've, got to, you've got Tobias, who as a human was miserable, Bounced around between foster homes, constantly bullied, had no friends, didn't know what he was ever doing with his life so much so that when he ends up being a red-tailed hawk, he finally finds something resembling fucking peace. (laughs) You you have Cassie, who is more, who, who also is unsure, like Marco, but not because she doesn't, you know, want to address this, but because she doesn't want to hurt anybody. She's the most pacifistic, compassionate person. Uh... And then you have Rachel, who is the ultimate soldier. Rachel is, like, a popular girl, does gymnastics, like, very stereotypical girly girl character who admittedly is a little aggressive. And then when she... But she, but they establish Rachel loves fighting. Rachel... Rachel's battle morph is a grizzly bear, a male grizzly bear. And she selects that very specifically because it's like the most lethal animal they have. She's their powerhouse character. Yeah. 
And then you get Axe, who's <laughs> like, is the alien. He's not even a human, but he's probably the funniest character because A, he lives in the shadow of his older brother, who's this like war hero and is the guy who gives all the Animorphs their powers. B, he's just this little dork because like his, his species doesn't have a sense of taste. So every time he morphs a human, he talks and he is interested by the noises that happen. So he'll say something like, I, I love cinnamon buns, buns, bzz, bzz. Ooh, that Z sound tickles my human mouth parts. <laughs> and, he obs- and he just eats like shit tons of junk food and is like, sense of taste is overwhelming and delicious. And I love, I love morphing human. These sounds are enjoyable to my human ears <laughs> and certainly not my antennae. Right, and that's how it like it, it still manages to balance funny elements and silly elements and not just be like uh, something to traumatize young children. And yeah, but like and, and all of the characters experience this whole thing so differently. Right, because they're so multifaceted and and you know it's it's pretty intentional. You know, each book is narrated by a different character, and and that's such an interesting thing that I really enjoyed because it managed to vary the tone of the series. You know, you knew that a Marco book was going to have a different tone than a Cassie book was going to have a different tone than a Tobias or an Axe book. And I think it really helped cast a wide net towards attracting different personalities of its young readers as like an entryway into the greater story. It was really brilliant by Kay Applegate. Yeah. I mean, I, I always knew I was going to find, I loved Marco and Tobias books because I related to them. Um, because Marco was the smartass and Tobias was the weird little loner kid, both of which I related to. I always thought that Rachel and Jake books were going to be the heavy ones, like the really, really emotionally heavy ones because Jake never wants the burden and Rachel has the bloodlust and bloodlust is the wrong term probably. But again, she's just such a fascinating character in that regard and then the Cassie and Axe books were going to compel to my, like, kinder sensibilities. And my more altruistic and idealistic sensibilities. So I always found a hook with every damn one of them. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it was great. You never you never quite knew what you were going to get. The, the way the series works, there's so many sci-fi elements at play. There are more than one, like wholly omnipotent creatures that can just do whatever they want with a a snap of their fingers. And that was a fun way to explore killing the characters. Like there's more than one book where every character dies and then it just sort of gets undone so that they can make a different choice. And those always freaked me out too. Um, Yeah, no. Those, those Megamorphs books, yeah. Yeah, the dinosaur one. There's one where they go back to the Cretaceous period and they all become T-Rexes and fight aliens, and it's amazing. There's also there's also the third Megamorphs book where they start where they travel through time. Uh, and at one point they straight up are in World War One and they see Hitler <laughs> and they straight up have the okay. Do we kill Hitler right now? Conversation? Because I want to say... I, 
I don't remember who it was. I want to actually say that it might have been Marco, Marco or Jake, who, like, are in a morph, and they jump on Hitler and are, like, ready to kill him. And I think it's, like, Cassie or Tobias go, we can't kill him. We can't change all of history. And they're like, do you understand what would what we would accomplish by killing him right here? And they're like, yes, I understand that. And we are trying to fix a problem and stop it from changing the time stream. We can't change the time stream our own selves. And it is like, oh, maybe page and a half conversation. Not even. <laughs> but I just kind of go, are we having... Are we having the baby Hitler talk? <laughs> Granted, it's not baby Hitler. It's World War One Hitler who's just, like, driving an ambulance or something. But they straight up have the Hitler talk in the middle of the Megamorphs book. Yeah. This was a weird series, well, y'all. Like, <laughs> dear listeners, this was a weird series, but a great series. It's a weird and wonderful series. I did not know until researching it that, like, the back half of the catalog was mostly was written ghost by written. Ghost Riders. And I think... That yeah. does a lot to um, answer questions about tone and and maybe things being weirder. Uh, now I really kind of want to just take a, a weekend and reread the series and see how apparent that is as an adult. Um, but just it was such a fun way to explore these themes that like I hadn't been around yet. I I, I hadn't read something where you've got to wonder, do we shoot the bad guy out in airlock, even though the bad guy is a slug inside the other guy's head? Do we, do we kill an innocent to kill the bad guy? You know, and I want to just briefly talk about the TV show. It only lasted two seasons. Um, It was on Nickelodeon and it it had like a power rangers-esque budget you know we already talked about how Mm -hmm. you know they used late 90s cgi to try and do their best in terms of um the morphing animations and you know whatever could they they just wouldn't show anything and you would just hear like some crunching and some popping and then a tiger would jump out where jake had been um, I, actually I yeah. found, um, most of these episodes are on YouTube. Somebody did the kindness <laughs> of burning some shitty VHS quality rips of most of this show. Yes. Yep. <laughs> um, it, I watched a few of the episodes and I was like, Oh, Oh, this TV show is way not very good. No, this TV show is awful. Um, but it did introduce me to Sean Ashmore, who is Bobby Drake from the X-Men movies, Iceman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've always yep. had a soft spot for him. Um, and, you know, in, in the same way as a kid, it, it managed to have some tender moments. Um, I think the best scene in the whole show is a scene where uh, Jake is using like a a a thing to make his voice sound different in the phone and then calls his brother who the entire series, his brother is under the control of a yerk um, calls his brother Mm -hmm. and says, don't ever give up. We're still fighting. And then when his brother hangs up the phone, his hands start shaking to signify that like his real brother inside his head is, is fighting and can take control. And it's a very, very wonderful moment um, from my childhood. Who is this? Just keep fighting. We'll be fighting with you. 
Um, but so I, I love this series. Yeah, Andy. I, I absolutely love this series. Um, we're, we're coming up to a good time to stop, but I didn't know, like we've talked about darkness. We've, we've talked about how this series like really introduces kids to adult themes. Nothing does that more than the fucking ending. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> which if you care about this 20 year old book series uh stop now real quick but yeah jump to jump jump to the part that andy is going to say right here <laughs> that is 45 minutes and 40 seconds you glorious and delayed anamorphs purist and that's when we start our hate topic right exactly for those of you still with us, um, let's just talk for a second how K.A. Applegate ends this series by killing most of the characters. Yeah. And I mean, there's there's a statement on futility there. And like, that last book, that last book fucked yeah. me up. Like, that last book, it begins with Rachel dying, which they had foreshadowed in the Elemist Chronicles, which was another one of the like, spin-off yeah. books. They foreshadow that, okay, this is an Animorph, this Animorph is going to die. They don't say who it is in the Elemis Chronicles, though I think all of us who had been, like, keeping up with the books, we were all like, it sounds like it's probably Rachel, because Rachel's the only one who's, like, this angry all the time. <laughs> uh, and, like, so they kill Rachel at the beginning because she literally goes on a I-need-to-s- like yeah, a suicide, she goes on a mission, suicide that Jake, mission to that Jake orders her to do because they need it in order to win the larger war. And he knows Rachel's the only one who can do it. And we didn't even talk about their cousins. So they're cousins. They grew up this together. Ends with like, a, 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 a general, for all intents and purposes, ordering his cousin to go on a suicide mission because it's the only way to stop the bad guys from winning. Yeah, and that is after the book where the general figures out that there's a tub, that there's a pool of yurks on one of the ships that has 17,000 yurks, and he orders it flushed into space. Jake commits genocide <laughs> in, like, the book before. And, no, and they address it in the last right. book, because part of, part of it is they go, is they, after the, after that happens, after they win the battle, essentially, they're attending the trial of the of viscer Visser three of viscer well at that point he's viscer right. one because he'd been promoted but of the guy who was essentially the big bad of the entire book series he's on trial essentially and the defense rightly points out one of the main witnesses in this trial is someone who murdered 17,000 sentient beings. Like, the Yurks, yes, they are the invading race, but those were civilians, basically, sitting inside that pool, and he slaughters them. And the whole trial, this is where you kind of can tell it's, even though Visser 1 is horrendously evil, um, it's kind of a kangaroo court, because they just kind of go, oh, well, you're, you are insulting a war hero so we're just gonna ignore that you said that but like he legitimately committed a fucking war crime if anyone else slaughtered seventeen thousand people in one go like that anyway <laughs> yeah again children's <sighs> book children's book series you're you're maybe a fifth grader i was in fifth grade when this came out um and 
and they address war they, crimes. They address war crimes. They they have a trial at the Hague. They talk about genocide, and it, it's straight up. It straight up ends after like a time skip with all of our main characters, with the exception of Cassie, who stays on Earth, um, doing a suicide kamikaze ramming speed fly our spaceship into this other bad guy's spaceship and that's just the and end that's of the just series the end of the series it, it's funny because just recently and maybe this is what like jogged my memory about the animorphs as a whole ka applegate i think on twitter um i saw she was like addressing the ending and her motivations for making it and it, it boils down to her being like yeah i made a book about a war and this is what happens in wars. Wars do not get a happy yeah. ending. People who fight in wars rarely get a happy ending. And I wanted to teach this lesson to your kids, which it's heavy, but fuck, good on you. And I'm not gonna lie, Animorphs informed my political philosophy in a very strong yeah. way. <laughs> so we're about to get into one of the one part of my political philosophy right. in this hate segment. This is 100% informed, at least somewhat, by it. Oh, I love it. I love the winding web of connections. Um, but yeah, uh, all that aside, like, I loved these books. These books were amazing. Um, if you never read them and you're somewhat interested and bored, take, take a weekend. I'm sure you can find most of them for dirt cheap at a library or I haven't looked, but there's probably like a collected Kindle edition of just every novel or something, you know, uh, there might be, I know for a fact, uh, that this is still around, but, uh, I think it's called Richard's Animorphs blog has just like the books online. Yes. That's technically piracy, all this stuff. But as far as I know, Scholastic has never actually like, taken any action on it but that's how i reread a bunch of these a number of years ago and so that's out there on the internet just sitting <laughs> yeah uh if we haven't scared you and you have uh, a child in mid to late elementary school maybe maybe give them a new book series to read i don't know yeah i i yeah. I, I really kind of hope that netflix or one of the streaming services uh, decides this is a property worth uh, resurrecting. I think it's the only way we're ever going to get more Animorphs content out there. But Yeah, because K.A. Applegate has no interest in doing any more yeah. of it. <laughs> but yeah, amazing book series uh, that we both love dearly. So, Alright, so from a uh, wonderful, uh, enjoyable, very dark and filled with portent uh, children's book series. I'm going to talk about my topic, uh, which, yeah. So the term here might be weird to a number of you, and I promise I will go into it. But um, yeah, so my hate topic today is guillotine fetishism. Up front, I'm going to be honest with all of you, this one won't be one of the research-heavy topics so much as an Alex moralizing about how good ethics are boring on hard kind of conversation. Um, but I wanted to open up with this, Andy. I normally ask you a question, but uh, do you still have your very nice dual-screen technology right now with one laptop for research and one laptop for recording? Yes, that is the setup. 
Okay, so here's what I'm going to ask you to do, Andrew. Uh, I want you to open up uh, on your researchy laptop, open up Twitter. Okay. Uh, uh, that's at JovoCop2113 for those of you who want to follow Andy on Twitter. Uh, and I want you to just run a quick search for the word guillotine. Those of you at home, you can follow along. Uh, that's <laughs> that's G-U-I-L-L-O-T-I-N-E. And I will say, I, I read this in the notes that you'd be giving me this task, and I have not done this. So this is 100% organic. Okay, I'm doing it with you. Um, but I want you to just tell me some of the, uh, just, just some of the tweets that come up when you search for that. So am I doing a top or latest or what do you whichever, want whichever top or latest. Okay. Um, got a lovely pair of Louis the 16th head being chopped off earrings Somebody who looks like he's pretty clearly at a protest of some kind walking around um, with a cardboard guillotine around his head um, and a a person named Rabbi Zv Solomons asking anybody anybody recognize the git carrying the guillotine at the demo please let's have his name and sort out this nasty behavior same for people calling for levers to be gassed at Auschwitz sure we are after all in the middle of uh, some what what is this Boris Johnson's coup regarding a no deal Brexit yeah that's a good uh, that's one for I'm... it yeah yeah give me give me give me two more. Uh, let's see here. I have seen the videos from the Stop the Coup protests showing a guillotine being paraded, pro-Brexit supporters being physically intimidated and labeled fascists, someone leaving, suggesting levers should be gassed. Imagine the reaction if the pro-Brexit side had done these things. And uh, another picture of the same cardboard guy. Um, from a different Twitter account, uh, very normal and healthy cardboard representation of an actual guillotine there. At what point are these guys going to step back and ask themselves, are we the baddies? Which is a fun sketch comedy callback. Sure. Intriguingly, a lot of the ones you're getting all seem to be from like people on the right wing side calling out the guillotine. It jokes, does. It does seem which that is... way. Be careful of what you do. Big Brother is watching you. Which is interesting. Um, so I'm doing this with you. Uh, some of the ones that are less pictorial that I'm just seeing popping up on the top. Um, someone at KRN sucks. Babe, stop calling me a class trader. That's not a Gucci belt. The G actually stands for guillotine. <laughs> uh... At mullet underscore fan underscore Neo. The Queen's hands were tied. Aye, they'll be tied all right. Behind her back when we lead her to the guillotine. There was one more I saw. Oh, okay. And at it's Jalen B. Uh, quote, niggas who cancel dick appointments at the last minute deserve the guillotine. Uh, and then... Well, I, I've, got, I've got one here. Um, somebody was saying... Uh, if Parliament legislates to force the government to ask for an extension to Article 50 and Boris Johnson refuses, what then? 
And the reply was, guillotine him and his right-wing cronies. In fact, why wait? There we go. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and close Twitter. It's kind of <laughs> okay. like putting the lid on a trash can. Yeah, but... Uh, um, that... That worked out pretty okay, actually, for what I was looking to do. <laughs> so, Andy, I, I asked... Well, actually, no. I'm going to ask you this real quick before I get into it. What are your reactions following seeing that on Twitter? <laughs> um, Did any of them make you laugh? Not really. I mean... The the image of a guy wandering around um, a protest with his head in a stockade with a cardboard guillotine, that's that's amusing in a concerning kind of way. Um, I'm not sure if, if these were supposed to make me laugh or not. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I'm going to say no. Like, I'm not... I, I, I don't find it funny to really be saying that anybody should be gassed or should be, should have their head get cut off in a guillotine. Like, I don't know. I need, I need a different kind of setup for that punchline. No, I getcha. I getcha. And that's, and that's a beautiful thing. Um, so I, I, int- I had you intro into this uh, via Twitter because that's a lot of how I was intro to, into it. Okay. Um, so to give some context, uh, I first heard the term guillotine fetishism as a label for what you and I just looked at on Twitter uh, in an episode of It Can Happen Here, which is an excellent podcast uh, about the possibilities, realities, and prevention of another American Civil War by the same people who make Behind the Bastards, which I think this is the third time we've talked about them on the show. <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll link to the show. It's a limited podcast. It's like a seasonal thing. Um, they just they did their first season about the American Civil War uh, or about the next American Civil War. Uh, I'll link to it. But uh, basically the term was used in an offhand aside in the singular episode they did concerned with escalation rhetoric from the political left which uh, the show and I will both make... uh, The show made this distinction, and I will make this distinction. That is definitely a smaller risk factor, uh, as far as violence is concerned, than far-right, fascist, white supremacist, Christian nationalist, or economic uh, shittiness in general. Um, But it's there all the same. The phrase summed up something that I've been seeing and feeling uneasy about in leftist Twitter and the blogosphere for a while which are these jokes and half-jokes about guillotining the rich. Uh, Mostly coming from people with, you know, my and your, Andy's, political leanings. uh, And the political leanings of a lot of our audience. Um, And obviously this is in reference to the public executions by guillotine that are famously associated with the French Revolution. You know, that thing where only people who deserved it were killed and it ended really beautifully without any detours at all into dictatorships or anything like that, right? No, no there, the was a, there, was a fun, there was a fun musical about it, I recall. Yeah, yeah, some some nice shit happened. Uh, I feel like uh, Alexandre Dumas had, had some comments about what happened afterwards. It was, it was pretty great, you know? Great time. Great time for everybody. Thomas Jefferson was a big fan. Uh, so... The thing that I struggle with a lot 
when talking about this concept, this idea of these jokes concerned with, you know, outright murdering people who admittedly in a lot of circumstance, like, okay, one of the tweets that you read, Andy, talked about guillotining Boris Johnson and his white right wing White white wing, right wing. Say it five times fast. His cronies, basically. Um, Does Boris Johnson deserve severe censure from all realms of the political world? Yes. Does he deserve to be protested and... Should there be a whole lot of very, very important questions asked about his ability to become prime minister, especially in the wake of no-deal Brexit? Sure. Should he be guillotined? Um, I'd argue no. Um, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, I'm on the record as being pretty, you know, anti-execution in general. Um, and even if you're not anti-execution, um... You know, he hasn't done a capital offense yet. Uh, If you want to argue that the things he's done should be capital offenses, okay, that's a conversation we can have. Anyone arguing that point is not going to look very good once you actually delve into it. Um, But it doesn't change the fact that, and this is one of the big things that bother me, a lot of the same people who make these jokes are people who virulently claim that they are anti-death penalty anti-carceral state, anti-mob violence, anti-riot, anti-a lot of things that you kind of need to have in place for some of what they're joking about. Which already, like, that was the first alarm bell I had when I would notice this stuff, was how hypocritical it looked. I don't know, Andy, do you do you encounter this a lot? Because I'm on leftist Twitter a lot. I'm in leftist blogs a lot reading leftist articles a lot and i see these jokes a lot and they feel very hypocritical to me sure what's your experience um well i i know almost for a fact i'm not in the same i'm not in the trenches as much as you are in that regard but i've been sitting here wondering like is this the same thing as when you see somebody go eat the rich that because, is a very, very good point. Because I, I'm at a point in my life where I'm saying, "Eat the fucking rich." Sure. Um, but it's like I see, I see that one a lot. To be perfectly mm-hmm. honest, I don't, I don't think I've seen a whole bunch of guillotine fetishism um, in my Twitter feed or. You know, I will say I've I've recently started following Robert Ele- Evans of Behind the Bastards, um, and a mm. lot of his content is like updates on various riots, and like he'll try to interview right wing Proud Boy dickholes, and so I'm 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 expanding my political palette in in that way. If if I've come across these, I've either forgotten them or just kind of been blind to them in in the past does that answer your question yeah it does actually um i think the eat the rich rhetoric is another vein of the same thing you know like i i was going to talk about this a little bit later but i can bring it up now um 
there's a very funny viral tweet that what that I saw, and I think I retweeted a while ago at Babadook Spinoza, who is, uh, I believe, a philosophy professor on Twitter. And the tweet basically goes, "Eat the rich, gross, kind of weird. Don't know where they've been. Use the rich as fertilizer. Good for the environment. Still menacing. Everyone loves wood chippers." <laughs> That is objectively funny. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Like, and, and I'm, and then, you know, I'm as susceptible to this as anybody else. That that's a funny ass tweet. There are funny jokes about this. The eat the rich stuff is hilarious. I referenced that joke two weekends ago while I was hanging out with some friends, and and I like rolled it rolled it out and mentioned it to somebody, and we all laughed. That is a very funny funny bit of dark comedy right there and that doesn't change that it's kind of fucked up you know i sure the refrain that i hear a lot when i point out this particular thing when when i'm in a headspace where i'm like okay i'm gonna try not to make the eat the rich jokes or the guillotine the rich jokes a lot of what i hear back are it's just jokes you know they're they are just jokes no one is seriously suggesting that we, you know, pull a Tsar of Russia and drag everybody out and murder them in the streets. And I go, okay, that's that's fair. You know, they're jokes. I'm not expect I'm not thinking that every single person who makes an eat the rich or a guillotine joke is looking to actually do that. Problem is that defense is the same logic used by people who still make, you know, racial or homophobic jokes despite claiming to not really believe in them. That's and, an interesting point. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and there is a difference there. Because um, with the racial or homophobic jokes, people are punching down. Absolutely. Guillotine and eat the rich jokes are punching up. They absolutely are. They are using humor to undercut and attack people who are more powerful. That is a really, really important distinction to make. And it doesn't change the fact that it's the same, like, the term I use for it is, like, Return of the Nazis Internet Edition, which is kind of this period of time that we're living in right now where suddenly Nazis are a thing again because everybody essentially who was interested in Cartman jokes from South Park took it a step farther and fell into the four and eight chan holes and suddenly didn't like forgot that the jokes about gassing Jews were supposed to be ironic and started taking it way more seriously. Sure. There and, and you know, there was a time when I I I made those jokes. I was a huge South Park fan. I was a huge fan of that like kind of shock and be as shitty as possible <laughs> style of humor. You remember me. I'm remembering I'm remembering much of high school Alex and some of his favorite turns of phrase. Yes. Do you wanna do you wanna share with the people one of my high school turns of phrase? Not the one I'm thinking of. Okay, good. That's good. <laughs> my point is I was I was susceptible to this. And, and to an extent, again, I still am. One of my favorite jokes that I came up with, like a while back. And I think I think this had to be in reference to somebody being... Tr- like, I think Trump pardoned a number of war criminals recently. And 
I came up with a joke on that that I've reiterated multiple times, which is that I like my war criminals like I like my Dutchmen. Hung. Preferably in The Hague. Which that joke good. did not land at all. No, that joke no, did it's not good. land with it's Andy good. at all. <laughs> um, you had to be there. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. It works in some contexts. It doesn't work in others. I find that there's a surprising number of people who don't know that, you know, The Hague is in the Netherlands. But, uh, you know, what are you going to do? Well, and, Point and is, the, the, seriously, the reason why I paused is I had to sit there and be like, Animorphs Connection, uh, that, that war crime <laughs> trial took place at The Hague in that last book. <laughs> yes, so that's weird. That's where, that's where you try war criminals, Andy. Oh, fair enough. That is where you try international war criminals. <laughs> See, at this point, I feel like the failure is not on you, but the failure is on people who don't know that the Dutch are from the Netherlands, the Hague is in the Netherlands, and that that's where we prosecute war criminals. <laughs> oh, God. But I digress. Point is, I have made these jokes. I, very recently, have still been making these jokes. I still occasionally laugh at these jokes. That eat the rich, use them as fertilizer joke is fucking hilarious, and I loved it. But... Something that I need to work on is trying to point this stuff out. Sure. Yes, there is 100% a difference between the eat the rich jokes and the guillotining jokes and the shitty Jewish jokes or race jokes or climate change denial jokes or any of those things that you see on right-wing internet, or that you'll hear Proud Boys yelling about, or what have you. There's absolutely a difference. And I, I, I feel very strongly that we need to be willing to constantly be analyzing our own humor in the dynamics of that, in what we're promoting, in the nuances of what we're talking about, you know? Like, I mentioned punching up versus punching down. Do you think that everyone who makes a guillotining the rich or eating the rich joke understands the nuances of irony and humor and have internalized those distinctions when they're thinking about this stuff? I'd I'd like to think so, but that might have to do with more of a preconceived notion that you're of a certain intelligence or intellectual nuance to be making those jokes in the first place hearing you actually ask the question i have to think about it and go probably not actually people are dumb panicky dangerous animals and you know it yeah i and i can't speak for everybody I really don't. And, and I'm not trying to. I, I am very, very aware that I'm going to come across as a hypocritical killjoy to a certain kind of listener here. And maybe there is some truth to that. Again, this is... I'm, I'm trying to approach this from a level of, like, me being humble enough to admit where I have messed up with this where I still mess up with this, and where I am actively trying to call out the behavior, not just, not just in leftist Twitter, 
not just among my friends or people I read, but in myself, to go, listen, if we're going to portray ourselves as having a certain degree of ethics, we need to try and hold ourselves to a certain ethical standard, yes, even in our ironic internet humor, because ironic internet humor is no longer a harmless thing. We do also need to acknowledge our own humanity, that we make mistakes and that we deserve forgiveness for some of those mistakes when we're truly sorry and working on it. But that also involves being sorry and working on it. I do, not want to, I do not want to guillotine the rich. I want to seize their assets and redistribute them to the needy. I want to cap their income. I want to mercilessly tax every dollar they make over a certain amount. And in some circles, that makes me a certain kind of extremist. But I want, I will personally draw the line at anything resembling serious discussion of outright murder, even of people who I may think deserve to die. How is that? I think that's a really good take. I think that's like self-reflection is important. And I think that's really what you're advocating. We as people who want to be better need to do. And the thing about self-reflection is you actually have to do it. So no, I'm, I'm totally on board with you, man. No. Oh. Thank you for joining me on this journey. Um, <laughs> I am currently working on my sequel to Eat, Pray, Love, which is Don't Eat the Rich, Pray If That's Something You Want to Do, <laughs> and Redistribute the Wealth. Wow. <laughs> awesome. Uh, you want to move on to our not-quite-question for this um, episode? Yeah, let's go ahead. Okay. Um, and it's a not quite question. So yeah. uh, for the second time in LHR history, we've got an update. And we're so very thankful. So here we go. Hey, Alex and Andy. It's Jon Snow here, writing from Beyond the Wall. And uh, to, as a reminder, Jon Snow, I want to say, was like episode 26. Um, this was our listener who had taken a DNA test and discovered some startling things at that dna test yeah basically he discovered that his biological father and the man who he was raised to believe was his father were probably not the same person and he needed some advice on how to bring the topic up so it's john snow here writing from beyond the wall what did father used to say everything before the word but is horseshit it's taken me a while to sort the situation with my parents out, but I wanted to thank you guys for your advice. I talked to my mom first, which was hard. As it turns out, no one in my family knew that I wasn't my dad's biological son. My mom explained that things moved pretty fast between her ex-fiance and my dad. Looking back on it, I guess it isn't exactly surprising, but it never occurred to her that I might not be her husband's biological child. A few nights later, together, we told my dad. It wasn't what I would call a fun conversation, but everyone agrees. My dad is my dad is my dad, and nothing is going to change that. 
I guess that's a pretty happy ending. I've been debating on if I want to reach out to my biological father, if I really want to get to know him, or if it's just better to leave things as they are now. In any case, you asked for an update and here it is. Thanks again for the kind words and advice, and you'll be happy to hear my family is still intact. Thanks, Jon Snow. I think that is a happy ending. Yeah, is that a better ending than actual Game of Thrones? <laughs> uh, yes. On okay. multiple levels. <laughs> um, wow. And, I mean, Jon Snow, I appreciate you rolling with the, the nickname, <laughs> for one thing, as a starter. Yeah, absolutely. I'm... I am really, really glad to hear how how well this went. I kind of want more detail about, like, <laughs> it says here, it wasn't what I would call a fun conversation, or uh, talk to my mom first, which was dot, 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 hard. Like, I would kind of like to know how some of that shook out, but uh, I will respect Jon Snow's privacy and not ask for anything further, but uh, the biggest message from that episode that we tried to impart to Jon Snow um, was that biology and parenthood don't necessarily mean the same thing. And I'm really, really glad to hear that that held true for your family in a really, really meaningful way, you know? Yeah. I was a little afraid for how this would go down, Jon Snow. I'm not going to lie. We we always hope for the best on these questions. Um, but, also, but, you know, there's a reason we have an emergency resources page on our website. There's a reason why we try and say things like, before you take action on this thing or the other, make sure you're safe, make sure you're secure. You know, don't take any actions that'll leave you in a place where you're not going to be okay. And this sounds like the very best way this could have gone. Absolutely. Um, yeah. You, you know, you're not really asking us if you should reach out to your biological father, but um, I don't know. I, 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 I kind of wonder about that my own self. Yeah, I think I, and they didn't ask, but I, you know, they, they did pose that it's up in the air and I mean, that really is your decision, but I, I think about a friend of mine who knew her biological father, but was estranged. He was estranged from the family for most of her life until, um, there was about a year or two where my friend really was able to, um, get to know her father who was living in Mexico at this time and get to know the the new family he had created and, and discover all these connections and roots and stuff and it, it you know it seems like it was a very um uplifting situation for her it's a bit different than what you're talking about but mm. i mean I, I i just think about how like yes you don't really go into details but to find out that this was a bombshell for everybody that's crazy in and of itself and I think that makes it all the more, like, amazing and wonderful the way this all seems to have worked out very happily. Um, you know, you're you're not hiding anything from your parents. And, you know, you have a right to, at the very least, get to know your, your biological father a little bit. And, you know, maybe you discover 
things that you two have in common, things that you've always thought were just unique to yourself. Maybe you share those traits with your father. Maybe you find out he's really not what you were hoping for. And, and in that case, then, you know, it's, it's extra wonderful that you have your dad. Um, so you're, you're in a lucky position, I think. And I, I would just say, you're not asking for our opinion, but I would say, go ahead and explore it further. And I will say, I will add to that. Um, I agree. I think it might be kind of an interesting thing. I'm going to say, don't be in a rush, you know, sure. you just got this situation somewhat figured out with your with your family as long as your biological father is alive there's no reason you have to rush you can take you can take your time with this you can make sure that you are in the best place to meet him before you meet him you can ultimately decide you never care to meet him um both and both are totally valid andy is absolutely right um but there's no rush you don't have to do it this year you don't have to do it next year. You don't have to do it in the next five years. You can do it when you're at your own place with it and you feel like it's the best time for it, if you choose to do it at all. So you say you're debating, you debate as long as you want, Jon Snow. You you can you can take a decade or more if you want. It's honestly okay. And there are people who there are people in like closed adoption situations or who get news like this that find out and they don't choose to pursue it until they are well into adulthood. When I say well into, I mean closer closer to middle age because some of them just feel like, why rock the boat? Why introduce? It's going to be a risk. And, you know, maybe the risk won't pay off. Maybe it will, but it's always going to be better if you're coming at it from a place of it being something you want to add to your life rather than trying to maybe fill some kind of void or a painful what if. So you didn't ask for the advice, but we gave it to you because that's who we are as people. (laughs) That is uh, the uh, core dynamic of the show. But beyond that, uh, thank you so much for the update. You know, we, we always are curious to hear back from people and it doesn't happen as much as maybe we'd like, but you know, especially since this was, this was a happy ending and this was a, a, a great update. It was great to hear from you. And so thank you very much, Jon Snow, for reaching out to do that. Yeah. And yeah, so speaking of the relationship part of our podcast, um, if you have a relationship question or if you're one of our listeners and, uh, you haven't gotten around to sending that update please do you can please feel free to do that we'll take any sort of relationship question we'd be happy to hear back from any of our previous listeners you can do all of that by sending your questions or updates to love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com where we promise we'll read them yep and if you're not already a listener or a regular listener you can subscribe to us on apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, stitcher spotify youtube or even tune in radio hey mom uh, we would also love it. Just love it. Guys, like, we go in some dark places in this episode. I'm not sure how good we're all feeling. We could really use a boost. And you can give us that boost if you would review us on any or all of those. Uh, and please give us, like, five four-star ratings. If it's any lower than that, like, shoot us an email, maybe. Or at the very least, like, 
write a proper review and don't just put a couple of stars on there. Like, that'd be really helpful. We love our we love our listener feedback, don't we, we do. Andy? We yes. absolutely do. I'm I'm checking our uh, I'm checking our Apple Podcasts review right now, and there's there's one I haven't seen before. Five stars. Stepped out of my comfort zone with no regrets. Cheers, guys. Um, and that is TJS username. Thank you, TJS username. Yeah, and um, I really hope that that's how you sign all of your checks, TJS username. <laughs> Just like that's perfect. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> um, you can tweet us at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D with your questions. Follow us to keep up with new episodes. And Andy, I just interrupted you. What were you about to say? Well, the, no, you were you were wrapping up, and I thank you for that. Uh, I was going to say, uh, if you're at all interested, I am doing another podcast called Cult Fiction. Uh, it is a movie film review show with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson. Um, yeah. You can find that on all of the same platforms you can find this show. And we have a good time. And sooner or later, Alex is going to guest host, uh, probably when we review a horribly graphic, gory movie. I mean, you've gotten some dark ones there, and Stephanie has powered through. But I am always happy to uh, come in there. and Maybe maybe we need something Cronenbergian. Um, <laughs> like, like something where you see something that uh, appears to be an anamorph morphing. Exactly. I don't, know, I don't know. Is Jeff Goldblum's The Fly on your list? It is, actually, yes. Okay, we'll talk later. Um, <laughs> where can they follow you? My uh, you can follow me, Andy Bowell, personally on Twitter at JovoCop2113. And I'm at A underscore X underscore R U I Z on both Twitter and Instagram. Thank you for listening, y'all. And as always, please tell your enemies. Straight up. Okay. Um, Andy, I'm going to pause you right now because I have to pee really badly. So before we get into the hate, I'll be right back.